In your Bible today, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew's gospel and the 27th chapter, please, if you will. This is such an important time for us as a church. Next week begins what the world refers to as Holy Week. Holy Week. Every week really ought to be Holy Week, but in a special sense, this is Holy Week. It's the time we celebrate the most important events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, the gospel itself, and the Passion Week, we call it, the week of suffering of our Lord. It's the reason we are saved today, what happened in these next days. And then on Easter, we celebrate His resurrection. Without it, all the rest would be meaningless. It wouldn't matter if He would have died had He not resurrected. So this is so critically important. And I'm glad you're here today. I hope you'll be here next week and the week thereafter because this is the core. This is the heart. There's nothing more important in our faith and that you get it anchored and grounded and solidified in your mind. Now, last Sunday, I preached on the supremacy of Christ, and I made the point over and over that everything that God the Father is doing, Almighty God is doing for, through, by His Son, that Jesus Christ is the Father's darling. He is the only begotten Son of God. And so he is especially special to to his Father. And everything that God is doing, he's doing it for, through, by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our salvation is indirect. It's through what Christ has done for us. Now, if if you'll take your Bible and open it to Matthew 27 and stand with me as we read God's Word today, please. Matthew chapter 27, and we begin reading in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. These are the Roman soldiers. They stripped him. They put on him a scarlet robe, scarlet the color of royalty. So they were mocking in doing this. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the reed and they smote him on the head with it. After that they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own raiment or clothing on him and led him away to crucify him. As they came out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when they had tasted thereof, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink it. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and they set up over his head his accusation written, 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You may be seated. The crucifixion story. And no one can ever overstate the importance of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is the heart of our gospel. Take out the cross, there is no gospel, no good news for sinners, because there's no payment for sin. And so, therefore, each man, each woman, each person would have to pay their own sin penalty. But the cross has made a way for us. So it's essential, absolutely essential to our salvation. Nothing reveals God's grace like the cross. And nothing reveals God's love and His compassion and concern for mankind like the cross. Nothing also reveals God's attitude towards sin like the cross. The cross reveals that God is a holy God, and even when sin is upon His own Son, there's no compromise. Justice must be requited. And so God's holiness is demonstrated in the cross. God's justice is demonstrated in the cross. God's righteousness, that He is a righteous God and nothing will divert Him from carrying out that righteousness, even when it requires the life of His own only begotten Son. And at the cross that day, Josephus, the historian, said there were approximately 3,000 people or more that, were, that at one time passed by or stood around the cross, according to the historical records. And in that crowd, I believe there was a cross-section of humanity that looking at the Lord Jesus Christ die on the cross that day, there were people there representing you, representing me, representing every segment of humanity, every single type of person. And so there were the saints and the sinners. There were the Jews and the Gentiles, the religious and the secular. There were Roman military guardsmen there. There was the governor of the province at the cross. There were aristocrats and there were paupers. There were slaves and there were free men. There were all of humanity represented. All of those classifications of people that I've just mentioned were gathered around the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my aim in the message here this morning is to, reveal, to show you that the cross of Christ reveals the deepest hidden motives of people's hearts. It revealed the motives of all these people standing there that day. It revealed their values. The cross today is revealing the values of every one of us, whether we are aware of that or not. It reveals our priorities. It opens up the human heart and displays the motives that men have toward God. You know, there are certain chemicals that you can add to a substance, and it will reveal the true nature of the substance. For example, if you have a swimming pool, and you can put a few drops of a substance in the sample of the pool water, and it will tell you the, whether that 
water is acidic or whether it's alkaline, and you will know how to treat your pool water to keep uh, algae from growing in it. And so a few drops of that substance will reveal to you the true nature of the water in your pool. Or another example of that would be that law enforcement officers carry a little tube of stuff, and I don't know what the chemical is, but I know that when they pull somebody over and they see some white powder there, or they see something that's uh, suspicious, that there's drugs in the car, then they can put a drop or two of that in that in a test tube, and they can say positively and almost instantly, that's cocaine, that's, men, that's meth, or whatever the substance is. It will reveal the true nature of that substance. Now, the cross of Christ is God's great revealer. The cross of Christ and people's reaction to it reveals exactly what is in their heart. And you know, many of us are not even aware of what is in our heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. And then it says this phrase, who can know it? Who can know it? Which means that I can be wrong about my own motivation. And when I stand at the cross, that's why it's so good to visit the cross, reading it in your Bible, coming and hearing preaching on the cross, attending the Lord's Supper. Every time you visit the cross, it reveals the deepest motives in our hearts. And so my aim today is to show you that. Some of the people at the cross were ignorant. They had no idea what was going on. Here they are at one of the most significant moments in all of human history. And these soldiers are down on their knees at the foot of the cross, casting their dice, gambling for the little bit of clothing that this man had left. And it revealed to me how ignorant a human being can be. Ten feet behind them or something like that. The most significant thing in all of history, the dividing line of history that makes A.D. and B.C. this significant, significant event, and they're oblivious to it. They're as ignorant of it as if they were a horse. They have no comprehension of the significance and the importance of what's going on. And then you have, you had enemies there. You had Judas somewhere lurking in the shadows collecting his money. You have the rabble, the crowd, the mob, and they're bloodthirsty, and it reveals just how bloodthirsty they are as they scream out, crucify him, crucify him. We won't have this man to rule over us. But he also had friends there that day. And I'm going to speak to you about his friends this morning, his friends that were in the crowd around the cross. And if you will look here, in your Bible with, you, with me, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll begin in verse 73 there. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely you were one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. And Peter began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And people, Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, 
you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now let's go back and put a little bit of context into that because back in chapter 26, Jesus had been telling them that he's getting ready to die. And in verse 31 of chapter 26, Jesus said, all of you will be offended because of me this night. It is written, I'm at chapter 26 and verse 31, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered abroad. But after I'm risen, I'll go up before you into Galilee and you meet me there. And Jesus said this, or pardon me, in verse 33 then, Peter answered and said to him, though all men shall be offended because of you, I will never be offended. Boy, here is some brash confidence in a fellow, isn't it? And Jesus said to him, verily I say unto you, Peter, that this night, in a few hours, this night, before the cock can crow three times, you will have denied me three times. And Peter said, though I should die with you, yet will I not deny you. And then likewise said all the disciples. And we know that in just a few hours, they would literally run from that scene, every single one of them. And Peter followed afar off, it says. So he put some distance between him and Jesus. He wanted to see what was going on, but he did not want to be identified as a follower of Christ, because fear took over in his life. That was the motivation. And he fears it. And so he didn't, uh, uh, on three different occasions, people in the crowd recognized him as being one of those with the Lord Jesus Christ. And over and over and over, he said three times, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. I'm not one of his. And he denied the Lord three different times. And then the cock crowed, and he remembered And look at the end phrase of verse 75, chapter 26. He went out and wept bitterly. He went out and he sobbed because his conscience smote him. He knew how badly he had sinned against the Lord. Talk about a backslider. But you know something? Now, here's the lesson. I'm going to give you a lesson in each of these, each of his friends. The lesson is this. The cross revealed that this man didn't know what was going on in his own heart, but that a backslider can come home. Even after you have denied Jesus Christ three times in quick succession, you can come home. Do you know who the preacher is six weeks from this point? Just six weeks from now? Who is going to be the preacher at Pentecost? The man who six weeks before was denying him vociferously to everybody that he came around. The cross revealed what was in his heart. His brash overconfidence melted away, and he deeply repented. He wept bitterly, and God restored him. A backslider can come home. Are you here today away from the Lord? Is your heart cold? Have you denied him? Maybe not with words, but maybe with deeds, maybe with your lifestyle, that people look at you and they couldn't tell that you're one of Christ's followers, and yet you say you are. And maybe you've denied the Lord in some action or activity or word in your life. You've been consumed with fear, 
I want to tell you today, if you are convicted of that, if, it, if you take that seriously, you can come home to Jesus. He'll accept you. Number two, in Matthew 27, I see a second group of friends. And a friend, and this is a group. This, this is a company of women. Matthew 27 and verse 55, if you will. And many women were there around the cross, beholding afar off, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Now, other places in the Gospels tell us that there were this company of women who had become his disciples. And they weren't out front. They weren't going to be the preachers and the leaders in this movement. But boy, they supported, they supported the Lord financially, it appears. And it also appears that they were maybe his most loyal and loving followers of all. And so in that number, if you will look here in verse 56, among them was Mary Magdalene, and there was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. But it doesn't name it in Matthew, but also there was Mary there. And we see later that Christ speaks to John to take care of her. So there's this group of women and it says there were many others also in one of the other Gospels. And they had followed him. And they had been faithful to him. They had ministered to him. There are stories about them that we won't have time for. And now they're gathered somewhere off in the shadows, watching as this one that they love and have given their lives for is nailed to that cross and is writhing in pain there, dying for, their, dying for them. And what I see in those women is they loved him to the end. They loved him to the end. Here's a principle I see here. Their convictions were greater than their grief. Their convictions were greater than their grief. You know, sometimes I, I look at these women here, and they were putting their life on the line by even being there at the scene as his followers. They were not ashamed of their faith in him. And sometimes I've questioned my own heart. I hope I'm not deceived like Peter was. I hope that I know my heart enough. But I've questioned myself. Because if I were in a position where I was facing persecution like these women were, if I was in a position where everything that I'd given my life to was now ended and it appeared was over because of Christ, if I faced the guns of persecution one day, would I be faithful? Would I be loyal to Him at any cost, no matter what that cost might involve? We sing the old hymn and how we love it. To the old rugged cross, I would ever be true. Would you? Are those just words in a song? Or do we really have a deep-seated conviction about that? To the old rugged cross and all it stands for, I will ever be true. The ultimate loyalty, the ultimate ultimate allegiance, 
the ultimate love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross revealed that about these women. Here's the lesson for them. What did the cross reveal about these women? It revealed the level, the deep level of their love and their loyalty, their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want you to go to the book of Luke to another account. We're going to keep your finger there, Matthew. We'll come back to it. And in Luke chapter 23, we have Luke's account of the crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, and I read in verse 13 about another one of his friends. His name is Pilate. You say, whoa, what Bible are you reading out of, Brother Bill? Pilate? Was he a friend of Jesus? Well, let's look and see here. In verse 13 of Luke 23, and Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the religious establishment, and the rulers and the people, he said to them, you've brought this man to me as one that perverted the people. That was the charge against him. Well, I have examined him before you, and I have found no fault in this man touching the things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, because he had sent Jesus to Herod previously. And I sent Jesus to Herod, and lo, nothing worthy of death is, found, is done unto him according to Herod. So here is the Roman governor and the Jewish king. Both of them have interviewed and interrogated Jesus Christ, and neither one of them have found any flaw in him at all. I find no fault in him. Now, you go ahead and continue reading the whole thing here, and you know what you'll find out? You'll find out that on three different occasions, Pilate walked out on that balcony in front of that mob of bloodthirsty people. He walked out on that balcony, and he said, I've talked to him. I've interrogated him. I've listened to your evidence against him. I find no fault in this man. Three times he said it. I find no fault. I find no fault. I find no fault. In him. He's caught in the classic dilemma. He's a politician. He's a Roman politician. And as such, he's been assigned to the province of Judea by Caesar. He's the governor there. He's the head man that the Romans have. He commands the, the military. He commands all the Roman activities in that area. He is, he's the top man in that whole part of the country. And now these angry mobs bring Jesus to him, and they demand that Jesus be crucified. And under Roman law, he examines and examines. There's nothing, there's no reason for this man. He is a just man. He says it a couple of times. This is a just man. I find no fault in him. And he's caught in this dilemma. It's principle. He can act on principle and release Jesus Christ, but he's going to pay a price politically. And so his popularity is at stake. Is he going to act in principle, or is he going to act for popularity, for political expediency? He's caught. He recognized that Jesus was a just man. He declared him so. But then he also recognizes that this mob is so incensed against Jesus Christ, they're standing there saying, let his blood be on us and our children. One of the worst statements ever made in history because, boy, it sure has been. 
His blood be on us and our children. He tried his best. Why would I call Pilate a friend? He tried his best to spare Jesus Christ. Over and over, he attempted to exonerate the Lord to them. He even offered to release another prisoner. No, 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 nothing would satisfy them. They wanted blood. And then they played their trump card. I won't turn there. It's John 19 and 12 if you want to read it. And it didn't matter how hard he had argued. They played the trump crowd, the uh, card the mob did. And here's what they said. If you don't crucify this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Boy, that made his blood run cold. Because if he got a bad report from the people he was governing back in Rome, he'd lose his position. You're not Caesar's friend. Yes, I'm Caesar's friend. That has nothing to do. But they had him now. They put the leverage on him. And so he chose the path of compromise. In dealing with a moral absolute, we all compromise on something. Compromise is not necessarily a bad word, but when it comes to moral absolutes, oh, compromise is a bad word then. You can't compromise moral principles. And in the end, the cross revealed that Pilate was a moral coward. When the mob could not be satisfied any other way, He said, okay, you've got him. You take him. You do whatever you want with him. And then, to me, his hypocrisy shows. He orders a basin of water to come in Matthew 27, 24. And some attendant brings out the water basin. And he religiously washes his hands there as if to say, oh, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. But yes, you are, Pilate. Yes, you are. You could have intervened. You didn't. You chose political expediency. Pilate, you kept your job, but you lost your soul. You kept your job, and you lost your soul. And in Pilate, the cross reveals the price for violating justice and moral absolutes. The cross reveals to me God's non-compromising view when it comes to great moral principles. It's true that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, 2 Peter. But there's a little phrase over in Isaiah 53 that I often think about. In Isaiah 53, the prophet says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who was it that crucified Jesus Christ? The Romans. They actually nailed him and hoisted the cross up. It was the Jews that demanded it and would not let Pilate turn him loose. It was the Jews. It was the Romans. But do you know who else crucified Jesus Christ? Listen to this. Don't miss it. Almighty God crucified Jesus Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Hear me. We live in a day of moral relativism. 
There's not much in America today that people would die for, risk their job for, risk their money for, risk their reputation for. Not much. And that's sad. It's part of the decline we see in this culture today. Here's the justice and holiness and righteousness of God. And Christ is spread eagle on that cross. And the sins of all humanity are upon him. Hear me. When the, all of the sin of humanity, my sin, your sin, and everyone's sin that's been ever born in, in, in world history, when all that sin is placed upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, God looks down. And God is so just, so holy, so righteous that he's willing to punish his own son because sin must be punished. Justice must be done. I can't imagine that. You and I can't make that leap mentally and psychologically that you would do that to your son for somebody else? We'll learn more about that when we get to heaven, I'm sure. But I can tell you at the cross, I see a man compromise away moral truth. And I see the Father in heaven looking down on that man and saying, I love you mankind. I love you, world. I love every one of you people here. But also, I have to withhold justice and holiness and righteousness, or the world falls apart morally worse than it is when there's no standard of righteousness. There's another one, another friend of the Lord. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. Luke 23 and 39. And this is the thief, one of the thieves that died beside him. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if you be the Christ, save yourself and us. If you be Jesus and you really are the Messiah Christ, come down off of that cross and save us. See, he's only interested in himself. Boy, aren't you glad that Jesus Never came down off that cross. Boy, had Jesus listened to the voice of the devil through that man, there'd be no hope and no salvation today. If you be the Christ, you save yourself and us. But the other thief answering rebuked him. He said, do you not fear God? Ma'am, what are you talking about? You're hanging here. You're a few minutes out of eternity. You're going to meet God. Don't you fear God? See, you are in the same condemnation as this man. But the difference is we indeed justly are hanging here. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing. And in the time that Christ was hanging there, this thief had observed him and could see that this is an innocent and righteous man. He believed even in Christ's future kingdom. Look in verse 43, or 42, pardon me. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come. Wait a minute. Jesus is dying. And the thief believes that Jesus is not going to stay dead. When you come, 
He believes in the second coming of Christ. He believes that Christ is going to come back and set up a kingdom. I don't know how he got all this information, but I know one thing. In those two verses, there's a whole world of theology here. He believed in the second coming. He believed in the resurrection. And he looked over at Jesus and he said, Lord, a short prayer. Will you remember me when you come back in your kingdom? And, of course, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, today, Today, right now, in a few minutes, you and I are going to be in paradise. You're not going to purgatory. You're not going to end up in a grave somewhere moldering away. Your soul and spirit are going to be with me in paradise today. They're going to cut your body down, probably going to burn it down there in the, in, in the valley of Kidron. It's, it's going to be consumed, but you and I are going to be today, together in heaven today. The repentant thief. You know what this reveals? Boy, my, if you don't believe in salvation by grace without works, you need to study this passage. Here's a man who was a criminal whose entire life had been given to crime and, and to misdeeds. Sin heaped upon him as high as the heavens, perhaps. Who knows what this man's guilty of? And yet this man is saved in a few minutes by grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned, through faith. And when he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given a home in heaven here almost instantaneously, wasn't it? Go back to Matthew with me, chapter 27. And I need to wrap it up here real quick, but boy, this is such good stuff here. Matthew 27 and 54. Here's another friend. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the Son of God. A centurion was a Roman military officer. As the word centurion implies, century, he's over 100 men in the Roman military. So he's an officer. This man is in charge of the crucifixion detail in Jerusalem at that time. He's seen hundreds of people die, but this man died differently. This man was not full of the anger of all those former criminals. This man, there's a peace about him. There's a gentleness about him. There's a purity about him, and he is a student of human nature. And he sees the difference. And he's studying Jesus. And then suddenly it's high noon and it starts getting dark. And it gets as dark as midnight because God shielded the world from seeing all that was happening here at this point. And so it, the darkness impresses him. This is a supernatural darkness. This is not... You don't get dark like this at noon. And then it, there's an earthquake. And the ground beneath his feet is rolling and pitching. And he thinks, there's something supernatural going on here, something that never happened before. And he falls on his knees there at the cross. 
And he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. This man is the Son of God. You know, when it comes to Jesus, there are not too many options. We've said that so many times. This man looked at Jesus, and he calculated logically. Is he a deceiver? Is he a liar? Has he deceived all these people for these three or four years? He's been on the earth here ministering around this area. No, this man's not a deceiver. I know men. I can tell. Is he a nut? Is he a lunatic? Is he crazy? No, no. I've watched this man in extreme stress and duress. He's not crazy. So who is he? He claimed to be Lord. I believe he is. And at the foot of the cross, he kneels. This man is the Son of God. And the lesson, the cross, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power and the wisdom of God both are revealed in the cross. And that centurion saw it firsthand and up close. In the book of John, we haven't been there yet, have we? Chapter 19. Will you go there with me quickly? And we have two friends, two friends. John 19 and beginning in verse 38. Christ now is dead. He's given up his, the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's finished. And in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, note the words, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, a secret disciple of Jesus, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And he came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, second friend, which at the first, you remember, came to Jesus at night. John chapter 3 is about that in the gospel, of course. And Nicodemus brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds of weight of them. And they lovingly took down the body of Jesus from the cross. They wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury people. Both of these are wealthy men. Both of these are influential men in the community there in Jerusalem. Joseph, for sure, and probably Nicodemus, too, were members of the council. And the night before, they had sat in that council, and the Bible says they had voted against the council as they sentenced Christ to death. And these two men now have been Christians. They've been secret disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, after being convinced that he was the Messiah and seeing what was happening here, they were compelled to go public. They just had to do it. Looking at him die and what had gone on at that scene, they could no longer be secret disciples of the Lord Jesus. So they went to Pilate, 
And they said, he has no other family that could care for this, so would you allow us to take his body? We want to give him an honorable burial. And Pilate said, you may. And so they took him to to Joseph's tomb. Joseph had the tomb of the garden tomb. And Nicodemus, of course, he brought along all the provisions for the burial. And they took Jesus' body and they partially prepared it best they could in the time remaining. And they buried him. It fulfilled a prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, again in verse 9, says, He will be buried with the rich in his death. That was written about seven or eight hundred years before that actually happened. Again, the accuracy of biblical prophecy being seen here in this circumstance. And so they buried him in a rich man, Joseph's tomb. And what's the lesson for us? Listen to me. If you're a true Christian, if you're a true Christian, you can't long be a secret disciple. You can be one maybe for a little while, but you've got to come out of the closet. If you're the real deal in your faith, you can't hide it. And the cross brought them out of the shadows, and it will bring you out of the shadows. The cross doesn't allow any lurkers, as we say on the Internet. You can't just hang back there and not identify yourself. If you are the real deal Christian, you've got to come out. It's a part of who we are. Romans chapter 10 and verse 11 says, if you genuinely believe, you cannot be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people profess to get saved here. And I talk to them about their baptism, and they hang back. They're lurkers. Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, if you truly believe, you can't, you can't not do that. Baptism is your, is your public proclamation. I am a Christian. I am a follower now of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the cross reveals something else. At the cross, it revealed that Christianity is not just a private matter. Christianity requires a public stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to me. I conclude with where I began. The cross reveals the deepest motives of our hearts, our values, our principles, what we really believe at the deepest, deepest level of our being. The cross requires me to answer the question, do I love him? Do I love him more than anything else? Does he have just a little place in my life or is he the Lord of my life? That's the question of the cross. Our heads are bowed.